you have your Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. This morning we're another week in our study through Hebrews. In fact, this will be the last, uh, last one before you come back. Last one in Hebrews before you come back in January. So, if this is your last Sunday with us for the year, you won't, you won't miss any of it. Uh, and this morning we're going to finish the chapter that we began last week. Actually, last week we began in chapter 5, the end of it. And, uh, <clears throat> and then we looked last week through the first half of chapter 6. Today, we're going to finish that look at chapter 6. And also today marks the, the beginning of the second week of the season, the church season of Advent. Um, I mentioned it last week. Some of you, may, maybe most of you, many of you didn't grow up in a church that recognized the different seasons of the church like Advent. Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas Day, typically the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas Day. And Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or appearing. And... Um, and, and so these weeks lead up to Christmas, which would naturally think you, make you think that it, it's, it's about remembering and preparing to remember the first coming, the first advent of Jesus at Christmas. But historically, the real focus of Advent leading up to his first, the day where he remembers his first coming is preparing our hearts for his second coming. The, the focus of Advent is on the second coming of, of Jesus the, that the Scripture calls the day of the Lord. Um, and that is imminent. It could come at any time. Jesus says in Mark thirteen thirty five to stay awake for that coming day. Um, and and Peter says in Second Peter three eleven, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness in light of Jesus' second coming? And so, um, and by the way. That'll, I, I, tell you, I, I tell you this, I told you last week, I'm telling you this week, that it's about the second coming, because um, I, think it, I think that's a healthy thing to remember in, in, the, in the very commercialized time of Christmas that we have, that it's, um, that it's, it's more than just uh, stores and stuff and Santa, and I, don't, I didn't mean to alliterate, but like, um, just... I don't know um, that kind of stuff. That that uh, there are there's much more serious things that ought to be occupying our mind, like the fact that Christ is going to come again. And so it's it's really a fitting time of year and season, also in the church, to think about what we're thinking about in Hebrews. We've just come through uh, a very serious and sober warning uh, in this middle part of of Hebrews, and that's just another layer of truth that reminds us that we'd better really better pay attention to, to these warnings and these admonitions to press on and persevere and all the more because of the fact that one day, possibly soon, Jesus will come again. That is, by the way, that is exactly the way the book of Hebrews itself is going to argue. I mean, we're not there yet. We're in chapter 6. But when we come to chapter 10, very well-known passage, in, in Hebrews 10, the author is going to say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more why, as you see the day drawing near. What day? Capital D, day. What day is he talking about? The day of the Lord, the second coming. And Jesus asked in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So it's a great time of year, most definitely, to take serious inventory of our own hearts and our lives. Not necessarily to question whether we're saved at all. That's not the only kind of inventory you can take of your heart and your life. But what I'm talking about is examining the, the, the fervency and the seriousness of our discipleship. That's what I'm talking about. Um, because, and, that, and, that, and that's what the, the warnings in Hebrews are intended to do. Because remember that everyone that this letter was written to, everyone in this church that this letter was written to, was a professing believer. And so the letter really never once does the author say, I don't believe that you're saved. And you ought to be saved. Now he doesn't say that at all. What he does say is, you profess to trust Jesus, and Jesus promises salvation to those who profess faith in Him. So persevere, keep on, press on, live like it. That's, that's Hebrews. And the whole structure of the letter is structured around warning them of con the consequences of falling away, walking away, which would show that they never were saved at all but also showing all the glorious reasons to stay and persevere. Christ is better than they, anything they might leave him for, especially going back to Judaism, which, which they had grown up in. Uh, Christ is better than every... He's been showing that Christ is better than every aspect of Judaism. From, you talked about it in chapter 1, from angels, and uh, chapter 2 and 3, then Moses, chapter 4, the promised land, Joshua... Jesus is better than every aspect of Judaism. Oh, the, the priesthood is this, this neighborhood of, of Hebrews. Uh, Jesus is better than all of those because all of those things were always pointing forward to something beyond themselves. Jesus is that something. He's the fulfillment. So last, last week, we looked at chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12, where we saw one of the strongest warnings in the book against leaving the faith. And honestly, one of the hardest ones to understand. But the overall message was unmistakable. So today we're going to pick up where we left off uh, and focus on chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, where we find one of the strongest words of encouragement and comfort in the book. So you, you might actually remember that the, the warning passage last week actually ended on an encouraging note. Um, and that continues into this passage. So before we go any further, let's read it together. We'll begin in verse 13 and read through verse 20, the end of the chapter. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having waited, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to Melchizedek when you come back in January. All right, let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, powerful, good, gracious, wise, perfect word. Uh, and I pray that it did not fall on deaf ears, or I pray that it, it is not falling upon hard hearts or distracted minds altogether. I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would take this word that we've, that we've read, even before we explain it, just the, the clear truth of it, would begin to arrest our attention and our affection. Give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us minds to understand the truth that is here. Give us hearts to embrace the truth that is here, to see at, for ourselves as important what you say here is important. Give us wills to obey what it leads us to do. Give me help to teach, to teach rightly, passionately as it, des as it deserves. I pray that it would lead us into greater love and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray, amen. All right, so you, you, can, you can begin to see how this passage links with the one we just finished last week. Um, so look again at the end of the, the passage from last week, verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you, this is at, right at the, at, after that warning, so we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those are the last words of the last passage. Those who inherit the promises. And that, that was part of his encouragement to them after the strong warning of verses 4 through 6. Where, and he says that he feels good that they're going to persevere to the end. That he feels good that they're not going to fall away. And here he says he believes in those verses that they will make it to the end and inherit the promises. And that's where the passage today begins. By elaborating on what promises he's talking about. Um, those are the first words of verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham. So uh, is, uh, he's going to talk about why this is, uh, the, what promise he's talking about, why it's so encouraging. And and uh, passage is going to flesh it out. So here's what I want us to see. Three, break it up in three ways. First of all, on the note I've just been talking about, I want to think about the unconditional promise of God. We'll see that in verses 13 and 14, as well as verses 16 and 17. The unconditional promise of God. I mean, I think when, back in the last chap, in the last passage from last week, when he says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and promise, through faith and promise, inherit patience, inherit the promises. This is what he's talking about. The unconditional promise of God. 
then secondly, out, out of that flows an unchangeable encouragement to hold fast. We'll see that in verses 15 and 18. We may take those in reverse order and think about 18 first and back up to verse 15. Because of God's unconditional promise, we have an unchangeable encouragement to hold fast. Um, because um, that promise is uh, grounded in an unfailing anchor of our souls, namely Jesus Christ. Verses 19 and 20. This is a really encouraging passage. We need to hear it for our good, for our encouragement, for our better understanding of the gospel. So let's, let's begin uh, by thinking first about the unconditional promise of God. Like I said, uh, verse, he, he, in, he ended verse 12 confident that even though some of them in the church were being tempted to leave Christ, he was confident that they would persevere to the end and inherit all that God had promised them in Christ. And it's here uh, in verses 13 and 14 that he, that he makes it clear the specific promise that he has in mind that he's been talking about. Look again at verses 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, uh, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, and here's the promise, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And he's quoting Genesis 22, 7. So when he says they would inherit the promises, these are the promises that he has in mind. They would inherit these promises. Now, a couple of things I want to notice about this, though. For one thing, th zoom out a bit and just think about what he's trying to do. Because he's talking to people who were tempted to leave, and he, he wants to encourage them that they're not going to fall away. He doesn't believe they're going to fall away. And he wanted to remind them of great promises that are theirs in Christ. So... Uh, he could have reminded them of any number of promises. <laughs> I mean, imagine if you were writing this letter. I mean, you could think of any number of promises, any number of promises that Jesus himself gave, if you, if you wanted to be an encouragement to him. I mean, he could have, he could have, I mean, he could have gone to John, like John 6 alone. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. He could have given him that one. It would have been good. Interestingly, though, instead of drawing on a promise like that, which would have been well and good and would have served a purpose of encouragement, what promise does he go for? Well, he goes to the promise that God made to Abraham. He goes to the father of the Jewish faith and a promise made to him, Father Abraham. Right? And, and, and so, why would that be more... You see what he's doing. Guy's tempted to go back to Judaism. Well, let me just remind you of a promise that God made to the father of Judaism. That, that oh, guess what? It's fulfilled in Christ. You know? He's gonna, in, this, in this one promise, he's able to do two things. One, he's going to show... Hey, by the way, you'd be going back to something inferior by going back to Judaism because even Abraham was looking forward to Jesus. And, and, and it's also a promise that is fulfilled and there's in Jesus. But let's look at the promise itself. What, what was the promise that God made to Abraham that was fulfilled and came to pass ultimately in Jesus? Well, for one thing, 
It was a completely gracious and unconditional promise. Who was Abraham? Abraham was a pagan, living in a pagan land, pagan culture, from a pagan family, doing pagan things. I mean, uh, was not a man humbly seeking after the Lord, whomever he may be, Lord, reveal yourself to me. Oh, and God came to him and revealed himself. No. Abraham was a, a pagan, living in a pagan family, pagan land, doing pagan things, and out of the, out of the blue, God called to him in Genesis 12, unconditionally, graciously, out of all the people on the face of the earth, he picked this one obscure pagan man and said in Genesis 12, go from your country and your kindred, this is Genesis 12, in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every, every syllable of that, those three verses is important. And you could spend a long time showing how every little aspect of that great promise pointed in a multitude of ways to Jesus. And is fulfilled richly and with a lot of texture in Jesus. But the high point of that promise is that last phrase. The promise that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, that's the promise, as all of them were, but that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. All the families, all the nations of the earth would, would find blessing through this one coming from Abraham. I mean, Paul said in Galatians 3.8, and the scripture, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that is, all the families of the earth, all the nations, Gentiles, not just Jews, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That promise in Genesis 12, that all the families would be blessed through him, Paul says that's, that's God preaching the gospel through Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel. And in Galatians 3.14, just a few verses later, he says that Jesus brought this about so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So Genesis 12, when God first comes to Abraham and first makes his promise, that's when it happens, Genesis 12. That's not what the writer of Hebrews has in mind in Hebrews chapter 6. When he quotes, that's not the promise he has in mind. I mean, that's the promise to Abraham, but that's not the particular version of it that he quotes in Hebrews 6. Uh, so what was it? Well, if, you, if you're familiar with Genesis, you know that God makes the promise first in Genesis 12. He has a covenant ceremony in Genesis 15. Remember, he cuts the animals in half and sets them opposite each other, and walked and smoking. You remember all that? It was weird. Genesis 15, but significant. But it's in Genesis 17 then, when he institutes the, the covenant sign of circumcision, that God actually repeats the promise again, that he made in chapter 12, he repeats it again in chapter 17. But guess what? That's not the one either that he quotes in Hebrews 6. What does he quote in Hebrews 6? Because God didn't make 
a bunch of different promises to Abraham. He made one promise, and he's not quoting the first time he made the promise, and he's not quoting the second time he made the promise. So what is it? The passage in Hebrews 6 quotes the third time God makes the promise to Abraham, which was when? It was in the whole episode of Abraham and Isaac, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham was going to obey, and right before he sacrificed Isaac, stopped him, God provided a ram to be sacrificed instead of his son Isaac, which that whole event in itself was a picture of the gospel that God would provide a sacrifice to be offered instead of sinners. But in that whole episode, God repeats that same promise a third time in Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, 16 through 18, we read this. God says, by myself I have sworn, this is Genesis 22, 16 through 18, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely bless you. That's what he quotes. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There's that repeated promise, because you've obeyed my voice. That is the promise he quotes in Hebrews 6.13. Why that one? Why didn't he quote the first one? Why didn't he quote the second one? What's different about the third one than all the first two? Because it is this promise uh, that, the, that the author of Hebrews sees as the most unique of the three and the strongest of the three promises. Why? Because in this promise right here, God not only repeats the promise that he made twice before, intentionally redundant, in this case, he adds something to it. He adds to it uh, an oath, a promise to keep the promise. <laughs> That's what he does. He says, by myself I have sworn. I will, not just I will bless you, I will surely bless you. So he makes an oath to keep the promise that he made to Abraham until he brought it to, faith, to pass in Jesus Christ. He makes a promise and then he makes an oath to keep the promise. That's what he does. I mean, it doesn't sound exciting, but it is, that's what it is. That's what the writer of Hebrews focuses on in Hebrews uh, 6, 13 and 14. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That is the two unchangeable things that he's going to talk about in verse 18. We'll look at it in a minute. The two, thi the two things, the two unchangeable things being, one, his promise, which in itself is unchangeable. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. When God makes a promise, that in itself, because God cannot lie, is good enough. It's unchangeable. But God, to make the point even more strongly, he had a second thing to it, namely, a yet another promise to keep the promise. Two unchangeable things. Verse 17 tells us why God did it this way. So when God desired to show a more to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That is a beautiful phrase 
and a beautiful idea. I mean, just, just marinate in that one. God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. God did not just want us to be convinced. He wanted us to be really convinced. That's what he's saying. Really convinced that he would keep his promise of salvation. What makes that so beautiful isn't just that God made a gracious promise to save us, but it, that it was also his deep desire that we would never doubt it. His deep desire that we would always be absolutely sure about it and never question it. That's what it says. He desired to show more convincingly. He didn't want you just to be convinced. He wanted you never to question it. Never for it to cross your mind to doubt it. And the promise, that promise to Abraham was not just fulfilled when Christ came and was born of Mary. In other words, it wasn't just fulfilled at Christmas. It was fulfilled at Christmas, at Easter, at His ascension, and will finally be fulfilled at His coming again. You realize that there are not many different works of Christ. There is one work of Christ that is being played out in several episodes. That's why He is going to come again just as surely as He came the first time because it's all part of the same saving work. The unconditional promise of God is for the purpose of giving us an unchangeable encouragement to hold fast. That is exactly what the text says. You know, I, told, I just told you verse 17 says that God wanted us to be more convinced of His unchangeable purpose to save us. Why? Verse 18 says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what are the two unchangeable things? So that by two unchangeable things, not just that God promised to send a Savior through Abraham, but he, he promised to keep that promise. Two unchangeable things. So that. I mean, you, you, you might see it a little more clearly like we did last week. We just take out all the, the prepositional phrases. So that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast. That's what it's saying. Why did God uh, not just promise, but promise His promise? Why did, he, uh, why did He desire to show us more convincingly? So that we might have not just encouragement, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That is why He not only openly uh, promised Abraham to save people, but made another promise that He wouldn't break His promise to save. So that in our experience, we are encouraged to hold fast and to persevere. And he uses Abraham as an example of that in verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained the promise. 
It's easily, easily overlooked if you're not reading this in context and you're not reading this with a careful eye as to what is being said in the storyline of, of Genesis that when it says Abraham having patiently waited, that is 25 years. 25 years. Longer than most of you have been alive. That's how long he waited. That's how long he waited for, for God to fulfill his promise to provide Abraham and Sarah with a son in their old age who would begin the long line of descendants through whom the promised Savior would one day come. The miraculous provision of a son in their old age would be confirmation of that promise and also pointing forward to another miraculous birth in Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin who would live and die for us and for our salvation. So the promise of God was encouragement to, for Abraham to persevere just as his promise is for us. When God made this oath in Genesis 22 to Abraham that he would surely keep his promise, he, he did it on, already on the heels of having provided something to him miraculously. And in the same way, for us, Christ has already come the first time and earned our salvation, and his promise now carries us on in encouragement to persevere. Like I said, because the final episode in, our, in the story of our salvation is still to come, and that is when he comes again. And the surety and the certainty of that is God's unchangeable promise. It is impossible for God to lie. Christ has come. Christ will come again. He will finish the process of salvation he's already accomplished. What does he mean? He's got to finish the process of your justification? No, that's done. What do you mean? He's got to finish the process of your sanctification? Yes. And bring about the process of your glorification. And that's the promise in the last point that all of these things, this, this promise and this unchangeable hope is found in a person who is the unfailing anchor of our souls, namely Jesus. Look again at verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. It, that's the first time Jesus' name appears in this passage. He just throws it out there because he knew they would know. He is the personification of all these things. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever on, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is presented here as the personification of our hope of salvation. Hope is not just an idea. Hope is a person. All right? Wait a minute. I thought our hope was in God's promise. Not just His promise, but His promise to keep His promise. It is. But Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. So He Himself is our hope. And, a, and biblical hope is a certainty. The reason biblical hope is a certainty is because it's as it says, Jesus has already gone where, where he is going to bring us, to bring all those who are trusting in him and following steadfastly in him. Those verses say that Jesus has already gone as a forerunner on our behalf behind the curtain. What curtain? I guess behind figuratively the heavenly curtain that separated us from the presence of God. And the curtain in the 
when he when he died, the curtain of the earthly temple was uh, rent in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the heavenly places was rent in two. And now we can enter in. And notice it says that he went on our behalf. On our behalf. Think deeply about the words and the phrases of Scripture. I mean, don't, I mean, seriously. It is God's word to you. Like, dwell on the words and the phrases. He went there on our behalf. Meaning, not just before us in time. Not just ahead of us. But on our behalf. Meaning, it's as if we are already there. In the mind of God. Is that a weird idea? No. Well, this is not the first time it comes up. You know, you've probably heard this. You hear it again. Romans 8. That those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. If you're trusting in Jesus, that's already happened in your life. Appropriately past tense. And those whom he called, he also justified. If you're trusting in Jesus, that's already happened in your life. Appropriately past tense. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're trusting in Jesus, that has not yet happened to you. At least it doesn't appear to me. That's something that's going to happen when we see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2. Brothers, what we will be uh, has not yet been made manifest, but we know this, that when we see him, we will be like him, or we'll see him as he is. That's when we will be glorified. But if that hasn't happened to me yet, why is it in the past tense just like justified and called and predestined and foreknown? Why is it in the past tense? Because in the mind of God, it has already happened. It is so sure. It is as if it has already happened. That's how sure it is. Why has it already happened? Because Jesus is already there. On our behalf. Holding our place. (laughs) This passage, like almost everyone in the letter, takes some serious thought to have a good understanding of the argument being made. And I am perfectly understanding that I'm inadequate to the task of drawing out in perfectly clear fashion all that is here. But the simple, the simple truth of it is unmistakable. You didn't even need me to explain it to you, really. If you just step back from it for a bit. I mean, the, the argument is, God promised Abraham to provide a Savior through him. And he followed that promise with another one that he would most certainly bring it to pass. He did it that way so that when the Savior came as promised and did his work of salvation, we would never doubt the commitment of God to save us to the uttermost and bring us in the end where Jesus has already gone on our behalf. That is the promise. That's the simple argument of this passage. Why is this passage, why is this passage right on the heels of the strongest warning in the book. Because the strongest 
motivation to follow hard after Jesus is not his law, but his love. And, and, and not only is it a motivation on our end, it's the guarantee of God on his. What a beautiful passage. Let's pray.